Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Jay Shaw, Executive Chairman of Hershaw Hospitality Trust and one of the founders of HHM, the affiliated management company. I was so excited to talk to Jay because Jay has been a longtime great friend and mentor of mine. In fact, I actually went to work for Jay's company, Hirsch Hospitality Trust, during law school, and it really, really helped me think about how I wanted to take my career, where I wanted to go, what kinds of hotels I wanted to invest in. He built with his brother, Neil, Hirsch Hospitality Trust into a major publicly traded entity coming from a family business. It is a phenomenal story. They started off basically owning small hotels and motels and grew it into this powerhouse. And now they're primarily focusing on lifestyle hotels in major gateway markets. We talk everything from pros and cons of a REIT. Should I consider a REIT for my own company? What he's investing in, how he's thinking about the markets today, missed opportunities, some of his tremendous successes. It is a phenomenal chat. Please enjoy my conversation today with Jay Shaw. So I'm here with my good friend, Jay Shaw. I am very humbled to have you on the podcast. You've actually taught me so much about hospitality, and I'm grateful to call you one of my close friends. Thanks for joining me on Masters of Moments today. Jake, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought an interesting place to start would be a little anecdote that I remember from something my dad told me. And I think back in the day, the the story that I know is I think my grandfather lent you and your family some money to build a hotel in New York City. And part of the deal, my grandfather was this like tough negotiator. He got you to include 100 free room nights. And you smartly included a caveat that you'd include the 100 free room nights, but only if the occupancy was below 90% or something like that. So my sister, I think, was doing an internship in New York City. And my dad thought, great, I don't have to pay to put her in an apartment. I'm just going to put her in this Hampton Inn that the Shahs built. And he thought he was going to get the whole thing for free. At the end of the summer internship, he gets this massive bill because you guys didn't have one free night available because you were always over 90% occupied. And I thought we could maybe talk about what it was like for you and your brother and your dad building that first hotel in New York City, coming from where you came from and where the company was at that time. 
No, sure. That's a great story. And yes, your grandfather, Dan Tavis, was our first lender on our foray into New York City hotel development and ownership. You know, that particular loan, we had gone to Dan to get a land loan on our first parcel in New York City. It was mid-block, not on an avenue. And it was a it was a particularly difficult time. You know, I'm remembering, I remember we topped off sometime in 2001, but we were sort of in the late 90s. And I don't know that there was difficulty in finding financing, but I think there was difficulty in our family finding financing in New York City. I think, you know, back in the day, I think banks were used to seeing select service hotels, limited service hotels, Hampton Inns in certain parts of the world. They weren't necessarily ready to see them in big cities. And, you know, it was always our family's thesis that the Hampton Inn brand, which was one of the category killing brands in the mid-scale space, you know, back say 20, 25 years ago, it was always our view that, you know, these brands were underrepresented in cities. And in the cities, typically the most three-star product was an old five-star hotel that just hadn't renovated in 20 years. And so there was no purpose-built three-star product in the city back then. And if it was there, it was pretty old and it was purely a sort of a leisure tourist group house. And one of the reasons I think that we were early in doing this is that, you know, back in those days as well, you know, the expectation on the kind of returns that you would generate from a select service hotel in Manhattan were different. You know, the brands were relatively new. They, you know, when I say relatively new, those are probably 15 to 20 year old brands at this time. And as I mentioned before, they were primarily represented in secondary and tertiary markets. The expectation, conventional wisdom was that these brands, when they were placed in a city, were going to perform at some relative premium to the nationwide average of ADR and occupancy for these hotels. And our thesis was slightly different. Our thesis was that these hotels were going to operate at a relative drag to the five-star product. And the space between operating at a premium to the national average of select service performance versus operating at a discount to New York five-star performance, there was a lot of real estate in between. That was a very wide range. And that range is kind of where I think our conviction lay. And we really believe that purpose-built, somewhat more design-oriented, you know, this wasn't your, these weren't your typical suburban Hampton Ends, but we felt that a purpose-built, relatively design-oriented, mid-scale hotel product had a place in urban markets. And, and so when we opened that first one in Chelsea, the one that your grandfather was involved in helping us finance in its initial stages, was one of the very first Hampton Inns in an urban location. And we had proven out this, the mid-scale, urban mid-scale case in other cities. You know, we had the Hampton Inn in Philadelphia. We had had in other secondary cities. We had downtown select service hotels, but we had never done anything in a significant primary market. And so we were able to get the hotel built. But just as we were topping off, you know, the September 11th tragedy happened and unfolded in New York City. So construction on the building uh, stalled briefly, but what was 
more difficult was that our construction loan needed to convert into a permanent loan. And because of what transpired that day, there was a lot of financing. You know, a lot of people don't remember this, but a lot of financing got disrupted around that time. You know, I think in the end, most folks were able to figure it out. But I remember when that happened, we had to go out and find another lender. And Hilton at that time proved to be a terrific partner. And they came in and guaranteed a portion of the loan because they were very aligned with us in getting this first Hampton Inn in New York City open. But when we eventually did, you know, it turned out that our thesis, we were able to prove it out. You know, that hotel ramped up very quickly, actually more quickly than we had imagined. And what I mean by ramped up is that the occupancy reached stabilized levels in a matter of eight months versus the 18 months that we had anticipated. And we were able to drive ADRs right at that level that was at a relatively 20 to 25% discount to the full service Hilton product in the market. And I remember the success was particularly sweet on the days that we were getting calls from Hilton telling us, hey, you guys got to pump the brakes. The Hampton Inn is doing a higher ADR and a higher occupancy than the Hilton Midtown. And so that's a very long story about our first Hampton Inn. And your grandfather was very much a part of that. What did you learn opening a hotel during the chaos after September 11th in the commercial real estate world in New York City that you often think about as we perhaps are entering into a a new cycle here and went through the GFC and went through COVID? What did you learn during that time that you definitely used going forward? Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, that became so apparent when we were doing that, you know, that was a very, very big development project for our company at the time. It was somewhat of an unproven, an investment thesis and an investment segment, you know, in our, so it it took some gumption. I think what we learned from all of that is you know, sometimes these things are very difficult to get done. You know, that particular hotel probably took us two and a half times longer, you know, than hotels had taken us to develop in the past. But I think what we were able to do was after getting that first one done, we were able to create some relative scale in New York City. And so I think everything worked out well there. But on the other hand, we have entered some urban markets where we just don't find the dynamics such that we want to make that a strategic market going forward. You know, so it's not dissimilar for us to dip our toe into a market with a single Hampton Inn and Chelsea, you know, in New York. And then over time, you know, to build out that New York cluster to the point that, you know, today, well, you know, today we've actually sold some of those houses, but at one time, you know, we, we had as many as 16 hotels that we owned and operated in New York City. And it all kind of started from that first Hampton Inn in Chelsea. It's amazing. Did you look at New York as a way to catapult your company and to institutionalize it or legitimize it in a way that like, hey, I've planted this flag in New York City. This will enable us to do many other things. Was the REIT around then or was this before the REIT was formed? No, it's a great question. It was just as the REIT was launching. 
we went public, you know, the Persia Hospitality Trust, we listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 2000. And so we completed the New York City, our first hotel in New York City, sometime later in 2002. And, and so the timing of the launch of the publicly traded REIT and our New York City strategy, they did coincide. And that was very much by design. You know, when we were launching, when we started thinking about external sources of capital, company to date, it, you know, it had grown out of an entrepreneurial venture that my dad had started while he was still working full time as a chemical engineer. We bought his first 11 room motel as a side business. We, you know, we had a manager, he and his wife lived there and and we were really able to turn that around. But then the second motel my dad bought, I was in sixth grade in middle school, it was called the Red Rose Motel. It was a 23-room motel. My dad was still working as an engineer. And that, that, that motel we actually moved into. You know, we lived at that motel and, and worked it. So my home, all my middle school years, it was almost like living on a family farm. And, you know, out of sort of out of that, you know, out of out of those early experiences. My dad found the hotel business to be one that, as an entrepreneur, was very attractive because, you know, and I often say the hotel business is a really interesting dynamic. You've got a consumer-facing real estate business stacked on top of a real estate business. And it's very exciting in that there's two ways to drive value, but there's also two ways to get smoked because it's an extremely specialized business, both sides of it. And I think what my dad found about it was that if you could get a hotel turn around its top line, its operating performance, then you have cash flow coming off of the asset that's not only helping to pay the mortgage, but in some cases generating enough earnings that you can then reinvest that over time. And, you know, it's not dissimilar from a Berkshire Hathaway model, right? It's all about compounding. And the thought was that hotels bought at sensible pricing where you improve performance, we're going to throw off lots of cash flow. And so not only were you amortizing principal on that initial investment, you were starting to develop reserves of capital that you can use in other investments, you know, by bringing in additional capital. So then fast forward through some of the early development phases and to mine and my brother's early years around joining the company and going public, you know, all of that was driven by the need for external capital because we had gotten to the point where our pipeline was very, very productive, but it was productive enough that the bootstrap equity that was coming off of our operating business was not going to be enough to address the actual pipeline opportunity that we had. And, you know, so at the time, I was young. I graduated from college and law school, and I've been practicing law, and I, I was Mr. Smart Guy. But my brother and I were noticing about the business. And, you know, because I kind of related the story of how through my middle school years and my brother's five years younger than me, and, you know, we, we both lived there. So he and I have grown up with hospitality as our family business. So, you know, it wasn't that remarkable that at a young age, Neil and I would talk about the business, even though back then we weren't fully involved in it. 
And we just felt like the platform was growing terrifically. And my dad and his four partners were, you know, each overseeing a hotel or two. And if there was any new development, you know, it would kind of fall under the purview of one of the other partners. And each one did all the same things. And then they would each be, you know, they would be responsible for the operations of their two or three portfolio hotels. And everybody owned interest in all of them. And then whoever was overseeing those particular hotels had more of an interest in those hotels. So, you know, pretty, very equitable. And and his partners were terrific folks. And he only would take on partners that were actually very gainfully and successfully employed. Otherwise, he didn't want to have yeah, so everybody that is a partner at Hirschfeld left, uh, you know, jobs at, you know, DuPont Chemical as chemical engineers or, you know, Tyco International, and they all committed to this partnership. And so, you know, I'm going to land this plane here, Jake. This is a very long story, but you're asking a question, New York going public. And I threw in there a little bit of the company's evolution where it was at that time. And so a lot of that new pipeline we were getting very excited over because the idea of being in New York and our conviction around the fact that we'd be able to operate at ADRs at about a 20% discount to full service on the avenue hotels in New York, that if we were able to perform there with our mid-block sites, right, which just had a much lower construction basis, that we would have productive investments. And as I mentioned earlier, that first Chelsea hotel proved it out with great aplomb. And so, as you can imagine, right, we're entrepreneurs. So immediately you see something works. It made us be in a hurry, right? Because it just seems so terrific. And so at that point, we were looking for external sources of capital. A private equity partnership is something that we had considered, met with a lot of private equity folks. I told you earlier, you know, we were new to New York and we were new to big city hotels. And so without having a lot of experience, we weren't getting a real big boy deal. Right. So the, you know, after a few interesting meetings with private equity guys, you know, many of them who you would know, you know, folks that are you know, today are friends, it just didn't feel, you know, it was just sort of asymmetrical, that first deal. And we felt like we had a relatively proven out thesis. And we felt like it was about as close to a sure thing, you know, that we had seen in hospitality in a while. And so we didn't want, you know, we didn't necessarily want to give away so much of the upside, which, you know, in a PE deal might have been the case. So, of course, what do we do? We went public, right? And one would say, well, that he's not giving away more of the upside. And, and, you know, I think the answer to that is yes, to some degree, on the other hand, it just gave us access to unlimited capital, you know, over the years. And the cost of it, when it is drawn and utilized appropriately, it's just unbeatable. And so gave us the opportunity to really scale up to a greater platform. Back then, some of the reasoning was that, yes, dilutive when you bring the public in. The initial public offering for the company, though, you have to remember, was only, it was 14 million and change. That was the IPO. The net proceeds to the company was $13.2 million at the time. And the overall enterprise value of the company post-transaction was $32 million, like total. Right? You know, Today, that's like a CapEx bill. And it's just remarkable. But that was 10 hotels, if you can imagine that. 
And so to be able to get that aloft in public, you know, it took some doing. But at the time, you know, REITs were a bit more in favor. You know, they were kind of coming to this end of this period where REITs were in favor, hotel REITs specifically. And so interestingly enough, we went public with the idea we're going to raise all this terrific capital and we were going to fuel this development pipeline that we had. And unfortunately, in the late 90s, we were talking about is the Russian ruble crisis hit and the capital markets just completely dried up. And there wasn't a dollar of capital, of equity capital raised in the hotel sector until about 2003, like from 99. There were a handful of uh, preferred equity deals that uh, LaSalle did back in the days. There were a handful of others. And then there was that, but a couple of things that did come out of that period, I believe Diamond Rock and uh, gosh, I can't remember, but a couple of these new REITs were formed under a specific SEC provision where they would come out under a certain corporate entity and they had one year in order to get, you know, get their financing straightened out and be listed. And a couple of REITs came out at that time. But it really wasn't until 0203 when the capital markets became active again. And so you're going public with this big pipeline and then having the capital markets completely dry up, you know, wasn't to plan. <laughs> and it really felt like a little bit like, woe is me. And, you know, it's a little bit like, what did I do here? This was like my big idea, right? This is the young guy coming back and his idea is to go public just as the Russian ruble crisis occurred. So we went public in January of 2000. Yeah, and I think in 99, everything had kind of come to a close. So we barely got out the door. So that's when we entered into our historic joint venture relationship with CNL Hotels and Resorts. It was a great source of capital. So, you know, I mentioned before the private equity economics, we felt that, you know, we were going to be giving too much away, right? So we went public and quote unquote, gave it all away in some ways, but not really. We gave ourselves the opportunity to really be able to scale. But those public markets that were going to give us the ability to scale with well-priced capital, the, somebody slammed the window shut for the time being. And, you know, the first six months, you're like, oh, it'll pass, it'll pass. You know, it ended up being like three years. And so CNL, we started looking for alternate sources of capital. So we're back to looking at non-public sources of equity into now a public vehicle, right? So it made it even that much more complicated. Because everyone's like, well, you're just putting all kinds of drag on yourself. It'll be a public company. What gives? And I think we felt reasonably confident because the performance on our hotels was doing pretty good. Despite the economic turmoil the world was going through, select service hotels back then continued to do pretty well. It was like a, a period when there was just tremendous growth and demand for that sort of product. And so that kind of helped us keep the faith as we move forward. And so, so we were out talking with different capital providers, and we had an advisor. His name was Richard Jennings, and he's now deceased, unfortunately. But he'd been a Goldman Sachs banker before, and then was, uh, you know, kind of worked on his own. And I forget, somebody had introduced us to him as a very good potential advisor in securing capital. And he's, you know, he's one of these guys that knew everybody up and down Park Avenue. There wasn't a source of capital he hadn't heard of. And 
it turned out he happened to be on a couple of boards within the CNL fund complex, right? And CNL, it was like a family of non-traded public REITs. And they just had an unbelievable broker-dealer network that they had developed over the course of probably by that time, maybe seven years or so. And it was pumping. And they were able to raise lots of equity. And so the way they used to invest with partners back then was through a preferred equity structure. And so our first our first and really only investment, CNL invested, a, you know, made a very significant investment into our company, close to $80 million in the public rate, in a preferred equity position, convertible preferred equity. And, you know, I remember the deal we negotiated with Tom Hutchinson, who is on our board today. He was the then CEO at CNL Hotels and Resorts. And as well as they have done, I am certain we're one of their most productive investments. That $80 million that they invested both into straight into the entity and into the Chelsea Hampton Inn turned out to be close to, a, you know, in a matter of four or five years time. You know, it was terrifically productive, both of the slugs of preferred equity they put in. And then in 2003, we were able to go back and do what we call our re-IPO. And that's where we went out and raised, it was a much more significant raise, a bit more than nine digits. And that's when we first got analyst coverage. And Many people was, today would, I think, envy the ability to raise public capital also because in some ways you get to keep control. When you do a deal with a private equity firm, they're putting up the majority of the capital. At the end of the day, they're really going to control the deal. And for the early reasons you mentioned why hotel investing can be so good, because when you get it humming, you have this operating cash flow that grows at a faster rate than many other real estate asset classes. And if you're in a private equity model, you sometimes get to a point where you're forced to sell an asset that you might not want to sell. That's a pretty good deal that, that you could own forever. And I often wonder today if people would have the same opportunities to create a REIT with an existing portfolio like you, your brother, and your dad had at that time, or if the market and the opportunity and maybe even what would make sense today is just very different than what it was like when you did it. Yeah, you, know, you make a great point. And this is something we talk about on our board. There's several members of our board, and we have a fantastic board. You know, more than 50% of them have been CEOs of public companies themselves, real estate companies. And so, you know, we talk about this, and, you know, there's some guys, and, you know, it's an old school view, but, you know, REITs were formed to be income vehicles, right? You're not going to have remarkable growth in share price in a REIT because we distribute 95% of our net income. We don't have retained earnings. So because that's getting distributed out, every time you want to grow, you've got to raise equity. And that's great. But on the other hand, you know, it makes it more difficult. But the offset to that is there's a lot of income supposedly coming off of the investment. And it's a big question today, Jake, really, about the REIT model specifically in the hotel sector, does it really work? Because as time has gone on 
And today, most of our REIT peers, more than, you know, I would say approaching 50% of everybody's stock is owned by index funds or mutual fund complexes. And you've got capital investors that have such huge needs for liquidity that to be of a relevant float today in the modern capital momentum era, most of the hotel companies aren't even close to what investors would like to see. And then add to that, you know, some of the things we talked about, heavy seasonality, no retained earnings, high CapEx bills. And you start listing all of these things and add to it, it's a high beta business. It's a beyond the seasonality. We have a very, very high degree of uncertainty in revenue streams relative to other real estate sectors. And so we always trade a little wider on cap rate because of that. And so the question is, is it really a REIT kind of sector? Are we truly kind of like alternative asset classes that are in REITs, marinas, hospitals, that sort of thing? Now, you know, I'm overstating it a little bit, but it is a question. And so I think as we go through this period of high inflation, you've got asset values being challenged, right, as interest rates remain elevated for longer than maybe some had hoped for. Of course, that leads to a capitulation in value when your capital cost is higher. I think it's in environments like this that hotels can be very, very, very attractive because our operating, you know, our top line is a perfect inflation hedge, right? So long as we're not suffering from stagflation, because if you don't have economic growth with inflation and high interest rates, that's a problem. But, you know, we've got this, the economy is clearly still warmed up under the hood, Right, it might not be doing jackrabbit starts out of the traffic lights right now, but it's still warmed up. And that's why you're seeing pretty good performance out of the hotel sector. We continue to see midweek urban demand continuing to grow at a faster pace now than resorts. And, you know, most of the urban markets, you know, but for a couple of laggards, we're we're expecting to be exceeding 19 top line performance by relatively strong margins. You know, we think in most markets, we've kind of gotten to 19 levels and some we haven't. But, you know, we're expecting to go through those 19 levels at different times during this year. And despite all of the news since March with the, you know, with the banking crisis, with questions about Fed's rates, you know, these last two, what was going to happen? You know, despite all of that, our, you know, our forward pace continues to look pretty good. And so we stay pretty optimistic about it. You know, I apologize. We were talking about the public markets. Yeah. And so going back to that. So I think we're in this era, at least for a little while longer, where having a long-term income vehicle that is de-risked, right? Lower leverage. You don't have as high of a capital cost and you mature a strong cash flowing portfolio of hotels. You know, that can be a very productive investment. You know, nobody says that your IRR always has to be driven mainly by your exit value. You know, very strong cash flow is, you know, just the, the same IRR as the terminal value IRR. So, Well, ultimately in hotels, that's typically what it is. I see deals from apartment guys all the time where the average cash flow is 4 or 5%, but the IRR is 20%. The only way to get there is on the terminal value, whereas hotels, I think it's a little bit tighter on cash flow. Jay, one of the things I think is most challenging is based on your background that you're describing, you strike me as a very opportunistic investor. And 
the way that I think about REITs now are largely capital allocators because sometimes when the capital markets are a certain way, you can't necessarily take advantage of good opportunities that you're seeing as a result of where the stock market might be. So in a time like today, and I don't want to really focus on today and more the concept where there's probably going to be tremendous opportunities to buy hotels, you might be a little hamstrung. And in opportunities where times are very good, it's hard for me as a non-REIT, as a typical GPLP investor to compete against a REIT because you have better debt, you have cheaper equity, et cetera. So I'd love for you to talk about the struggle that you may or may not have in operating a REIT with the certain constraints that may be placed on you from analysts or other outsiders? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think your read is right. We have in our mind a very unique strategy that we revisit constantly and we edit it and revise it. But we felt that we had a very differentiated geographic strategy. And I think that has been effective for us. We've been able to create a certain performance profile based on our portfolio concentrations across our clusters. I think when we talk about REITs being capital allocators and what do you do at times like this, for instance, right? Many of us are trading at multi-year lows and you know, you're starting to see them already. There's a lot of nine caps and 10 caps coming up. They're a little hairy now, but it's the nature of the cyclical financing markets. There's going to be stuff coming up and it's going to be a little painful to watch these deals come and go. You know, we've already saw a couple that would have been on point and we just don't have the cost of capital for it right now. We've just gotten done getting through COVID, selling terrific assets. They were, you know, maybe had higher capital needs in the portfolio, hadn't been renovated. Maybe they were hotels where in their development life cycle, they weren't going to grow above our portfolio average. But they were all great assets and long-term holds on those assets would have been pretty high yields off of our gross invested capital. And that's real estate 101. But like I said, they were not going to have a growth that was going to exceed our portfolio average. So if it's not going to be accretive to growth, then worse than that, maybe dilutive to an otherwise high EBITDA growth profile, well then, unfortunately, that doesn't fit in the portfolio anymore. High quality asset. Now, all of that worked out in our advantage as we were undoing some of the rescue capital that we had taken during COVID and you know, just overcoming some of the cash burn we had gone through over COVID. And so we sold some hotels in order to narrow down some of our leverage exposure with the thought that you know we'll be able to go forward and buy many of those markets back. But you're never going to buy those assets back. And those assets that are gross invested capital were still really, really attractive. That's why we're selling things. Everyone's like, that's amazing. You sold that at a four cap. And not only are they doing well, not only are they in great market for us, they have a historic basis on them from having held them as long as we have. So it is difficult in this public market. But like you say, you know, in about 20 minutes when the markets right themselves and we are getting a forward multiple that's 14 times 2024 EBITDA, <laughs> that's the market signal that 
it's go time for REITs. So then why shouldn't I package up my 15 investments and roll it into a REIT? They're all kind of similar. They're in nice geographic clusters, very much like you have. They're predominantly full service. Why wouldn't I do that and start a REIT today? Is it possible for me to do that? Because I talk to a lot of my peers and a couple of us have considered it because we have these really nice portfolios and we're a little bit torn between building a track record, realizing great exit multiples for our investors to go raise another fund or do something else. But the truth is, these things are just going to be worth more the longer we hold them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it depends, right? It really depends, A, on you as sponsorship and what are your, you as the sponsor, what are your longer term goals? And I'll address that in one second. Because it's a very interesting question and it come up before and I'll tell you how we looked at it before. And then secondly, it's a bit on what your investors' expectations are, right? That you set for them. I mean, there are investors that like the churn because they enjoy the act of investing. And I do too. You know, that capital allocation, it's exciting, it's intellectually stimulating. There's a there's a real satisfaction to thinking those kind of things through. On the other hand, I love 10 caps. You know, it's like if, so if you could be in an open-ended fund that's just going to return somewhere between an 8 and an 11, I think there's room for that in my portfolio, right? So a little bit of that depends on what you're doing. But I think your first point on hotel, portfolio of hotels, and is it an interesting time to be thinking about it? And I would say, hell yes. Like, that's a great page out of the playbook. Because at some point, you have to ask yourself... If the REIT has the better cost of capital, then they are the better aggregator of assets. And they will be a capital allocator, and they're going to create a basket of assets and keep that fresh, right, for the public investors' objectives. And, you know, and that's going to be, you're going to always be somewhat of a specialty CRE sector. And when the momentum is there, you will do well, your cost of capital will be attractive, and you will be basically signaled to grow. And then when it's not, then, you know, you're expected to asset manage, be a great capital allocator, right? Make allocation decisions about where to invest in your own portfolio versus outside of it and so on and so forth. But we always used to say, why did developers sell to us? You know, we'd get this great deal. The developer would be happy, but we had a seven-year horizon on it, for instance, right? Because you're buying it at the bottom of the last cycle. And we always used to say, you know, most people in real estate, you got to decide whether you're a chicken or a duck. And there are some capital platforms that aggregate real estate, right? They might buy it at a more mature state in its life cycle, or they buy core at a slightly lower yield, but with lower beta, right? Or, you know, you buy opportunistic. And so, That's one thing. But on the other hand, there's developers and developers are just developers. They need to get in there, right? You increase the value, increase your equity, and you monetize and redeploy because you can do another 30. You know, you you can get a 30% return on that capital, you know, when you're going to be selling it even in today's markets at a six or seven. So I think this is the time. I think all private owners should be very much looking at their portfolios and keeping them ready. Because I think as we get through a 
some of this noise. And, you know, I'm not suggesting it's going to happen this year or not, but, you know, I tend to think you're going to hit the peak interest rate sometime this year. Once that happens, lenders can bring their spreads in a little bit because right now the forward curve's a little wild out there, not sure where it's going to land. But even that's already narrowing, right? So once the spread and the yield curve starting to come the, down, the now. yield curve looked at the chart. Yeah. yeah, and so I think in a matter of a year's time, and I think it starts this year. I mean, you could be in a very, very attractive environment again if we do get away with the soft landing or just the bullet grazing us. So, I mean, in that case, I think the capital markets and hospitality are going to have a terrific period again because our ADRs and things, as you know. We're in an inflationary environment. It's been a positive for our sector. So to close this little segment then, what would you advise a real estate operator and maybe more specifically a hospitality real estate company before they go out and form a REIT? What would you like caution them about? Well, again, I think I would be asking them, what is it you're after? Because I think if you want to be a REIT today, you can be a specialty niche REIT player, you know, which is the space that we've occupied for a long time, better returns. And it's given us the opportunity to have great periods of investment because we've had very attractively priced capital. But I would ask anybody that's looking into it today is you have to want to be a really, really big REIT. Like it's not necessarily a, it's probably not the most appropriate source of capital for an opportunistic platform. It's just not the right capital. It can't handle the moves and it can't handle the volatility. It can't handle the imprecision on timing. We try to make hotels seem precise, right? (laughs) And we all know that that just isn't anything but. So I think that's what I would tell folks to be aware of. Like I think the cost of capital can be very, very attractive. Long-term, you're gonna have a better cost of capital. Long-term average cost of capital will be better. But what do you do with that? You create great value with that by having a fairly large scale portfolio. But our data also has shown for years is that pure scale and higher multiples There's no R squared to support that. There is no correlation there. It does help your cost of capital relative to peers who are smaller, but like the whole point is, is if you're going to do this, you got to be big and you got to be good. You can't just be big either because you got to be the beta whisperer to the public markets about hotel beta and you got to be big and do that. That's your differentiation and your scaled cost of capital. And, you know, and that's a lot, I think. I think that's a lot for most folks out there looking for capital. I don't know if that's the kind of commitment they want to make. That's what I would suggest. If I did it again, I would still do the same thing again. And, you know, Jake, we probably talked about this a hundred times before. Everybody's journey is exactly like nobody else's. It has the strangest meanderings that would make no sense to anybody other than whose journey it was when they look back on it. They can't even make sense of it going forward. But I think even today, I think it can be a great option for capital, but I think today there ain't nobody doing $15 million IPO. It would be totally unheard of. Ours would be a little bit bigger than that, but still smaller than than where you are. So more to that maybe. But I want to talk about something that is a little bit of what you experienced where 
your family started out with these limited service hotels, and then you moved into New York City and found tremendous upside, starting with the Hampton Inn and Chelsea. And my greatest deal was actually a limited service hotel so far to date in Philadelphia. And the thing just crushed it. But my issue with limited service hotels in suburban areas, the scale and the amount of time and effort you put into those things are is the same time and effort you could put into one in an urban environment and make double or triple the revenue or a full service hotel. And I want to know from you, what was it that you thought of to transition the company to more full service assets, more high profile, high barred entry assets, whether it be maybe some limited service, but also some lifestyle hotels. What was it about the business model of the limited service hotels or just where you wanted to take the company that led you down that path? Yeah, you've set the whole conversation up really well. So as we're talking about earlier in the public markets, you hear it all the time, but if you don't got growth to show, then nobody's really that interested. So every quarter, you got to have a plan on how we're going to continue to drive it. What we found with select service hotels, you know, I've had the kind of gone through four cycles and you know, each one's just very, you know, it has its own unique characteristics and whatnot. But in the case of a couple of them, it's like when you go through these cycles and you're wondering what can we take away from this, you know, from the last cycle, even the successful part of the last cycle, and incorporate it into our business plan moving forward. And it's a great thing. You know, that's the one advantage you get through surviving, living through a cycle. <laughs> you, you get a little the wisdom of hindsight of it. And I think what we learned over time, as much as we have great confidence in the select service segment, and I think it's a solid, solid investment segment. For the public markets, we find that the select service segment probably doesn't get hit as hard in a down cycle, pretty early to recover, but it matures into the cycle much earlier. Whereas lifestyle, luxury, they might start the recovery a little later, but they generally, on a cycle over cycle, they far exceed their previous peaks. Like it's just, there's just more growth. And, you know, that could be that there is just significantly more supply growth in the select service segment. It could be that to some degree that is a commoditized product, a bit more than a, than a luxury hotel or a lifestyle hotel would be. And so we were just able to just have better EBITDA growth outlooks on certain segments over others. Now, you're increasing your risk when you start playing in those segments, right? So then everything has to be on a risk-adjusted basis. But in this case, because we've done it over time, we felt that our capabilities were fully developed in this area where now we can scale across these segments as well, responsibly while not giving up any investment productivity. I liken it to kind of like if you're going to be a car manufacturer, you probably want to be making Mercedes-Benz and not Mitsubishi's because the other side of it is people driving Mercedes-Benz care and you can upsell them and you can have different models and meaning there's multiple levers to pull. If you're making a Mitsubishi, someone just wants a car to get from point A to point B. And I found in some of the limited service hotels, while they could be a great business, 
there's not as many levers to pull. There's no food and beverage. There's no activations. And part of the reason why I think a lot of people get into the hotel business is because it's fun and you can have these opportunities to create a really wow investment. Otherwise, you should just maybe go into like self-storage or apartments instead of playing with some of these economy limited service hotels where you can't do much. No, that's right. There are fewer levers to pull. I mean, you know, when it comes to contracting your expense, well, you can do all of that. But it's like you say, it's when you're trying to really drive growth and value, you just don't have, you know, you have a fraction of the alternatives to drive those revenue streams. It's just very difficult. There was a Lawrence Geller, who I'm sure many of the listeners of the podcast will know in the hospitality sector, you know, just a terrifically bright guy in the hospitality sector. He always was able to cut right to it. He was famous for deciding, you know, we're talking about hotels and segments, but he was the one who paid the highest number ever paid for what was to become one of the most successful Four Seasons in the country. In Washington, D.C., it was a converted hotel into a Four Seasons. You know, it was interesting. It never performed so well until Lawrence bought it. And he just found it completely irrational that it didn't perform better. And he was looking at luxury rates at Four Seasons and major northeastern metros. And he says this just was out of control low. And everyone's like, yeah, it's low, but that's just how it is. And he said, no, that's not how it is. Like, this is the best hotel in the market. It was Isidore Sharps also was one of his views. He goes, I'm not necessarily in the luxury hotel business. I just always wanted to have the leading hotel in the market. Because when you have a leading hotel in the market, you control the market. So then if you're a very savvy operator and if you're a very savvy revenue manager and have a great pricing strategy, you can change the face of the market. And that's what Lawrence did because you have so many alternatives to drive value. It's not just the ADR, but he coined the term revenue per available guest. And so wow. that was about, do you remember that? Was no, big, that's a new one for me. Yeah, and so that it, it goes right to what you're saying. He was like, well, we have the guest, we know their demographic profile, we know that they're happy to pay this rate, that means that they're happy to buy this much stuff. So we need to just get it to them. And so he always used to say, it's not about the rev part. It was about the revenue per available guest, rev pag, he called it. Well, not everyone operates their own hotels. In fact, you have a sister company, HHM, that operates some of your hotels. And in that case of the Four Seasons, Lawrence didn't operate it, Four Seasons did. So what are some of the things as an owner who doesn't operate hotels that you think about and can effectuate like the example you just gave? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that is a big one. I think revenue management and pricing strategy is something that owners should always be very focused on and should have a seat at the table in determining it rather than being reported out about it. They have to be collaborating in it because their investment objectives matter and they will have implications to some of the operating strategies at the property. I think another big area of focus is CapEx. How is the repair and maintenance program at the hotel working? And how is our CapEx capital allocation? Just being very thoughtful. And I think with a lot of management companies, that function is still reserved by 
the asset managers of the firm or owners reps of the firm. Sometimes the management companies handle it. So if you're going to have the management companies handle it, I think you got to be thoughtful about that because those are big dollars and it goes into your gross invested capital, right? And I always think about that because, you know, there's 14 different values for a hotel in your portfolio. Right? So, but at the end of the day, the gross invested capital as investors matters to us. I think when it comes to e-commerce and digital marketing strategies, I think an owner can't fully just delegate that to their management company. Not because many management companies don't have great capabilities in that area, but there again, that's a big spend and it's actually an extremely strategic spend and it does have implications in long-term value, I think, of the asset, particularly if it's an independent hotel. Those are three areas. I think everybody, and rightfully, you do have to think about this. It's like, if you pick the right general manager, everything will go. But I think you really need, you know, when you are going to work with a third-party manager, I think as the owner's rep or as the owner entrepreneur, I think your bus should include the entire executive committee of the hotel. And all of the things that they do is something that I think most investors working with a third-party company should familiarize themselves with. Like It doesn't need to be, the time doesn't need to be proportionately equal. But I think the functions of the executive committee are all one that the owner needs to stay involved with. What are the kind of things that you look for when you visit one of your own hotels to stay at or a competitor hotel or maybe a hotel that you're potentially thinking of acquiring? Are you just going through like saying, I would do this differently, I would do this differently, I like this? What really jumps out at you that you tend to remember and has a real impact on you that impacts maybe how you think about investing in the future, whether it's in that asset or another asset? Yeah. No, it's a great question. And having walked as many hotels, I sometimes ask myself the same questions like, what are you doing? You know, like you're walking through a hotel. What exactly am I doing? I think one of the first things, and I have thought about this, I think one of the first things I go in, and it is probably visual, I think of it more as a feel. And that's just, it's that sense of crispness. It comes from not just cleanliness, but it comes from a well-maintained entry program, right? Everything from the curb appeal to the lack of debris in the drive to the threshold, the metal thresholds in the door being clean. So you start getting that sensibility. You can tell if the HVAC has been serviced properly. You can sense that because you know, sometimes you walk into a hotel and it feels like a third world nation in the middle of the summer. And you're like, well, that HVAC is probably going to need some help. <laughs> so so you, know, you walk in and I call it a sensibility, but it's just all this stuff that we all think about. And so that's this initial impression. And I think whether it's crisp or not is going to come through. And I think sometimes when it's not crisp, then you immediately look to see why isn't it, right? If there's, if the bones are good and it's just, you know, a sloppy execution, well, then that's good. And you note it. And that's a little extra value driver, right? <laughs> you need to keep that in the back of your head. But I think you got to be thoughtful. Sometimes you're going to find a hotel doesn't have that sensibility of Christmas. There could be something structural that's impossible to overcome, right? And so, you know, it's maybe the initial sense. I do look around to see the nature of deferred capital, deferred maintenance. I think sometimes you knew entrepreneurs have to be very mindful of how they deploy capital. That being said, I think rational capital deployment is always going to be apparent. And I think 
you got to at least have had rational capital deployment. Like if you find a hotel where you can just tell that there's certain investors, you know, they'll kind of go to the nth level on stuff. And again, this is not to suggest that that's wrong or right. You know, that can also can be an advantage to the deal or not. But generally, it's not going to be because if there's a handful of deferred things, there's probably more stuff that you probably won't pick up. And that's okay as long as you keep your CapEx budget higher, right? So I I look for stuff like that. And then, you know, operationally, you just look at the players. We know people make a big difference in this business. We're running stores that do millions of dollars in revenue. The bulk of the associates at our hotels, they've got great know-how, but the bulk of them are unskilled and semi-skilled. And so sometimes it's just not all companies train their folks you know, to, it's amazing, you know, you go into some hotels and it just sometimes without being a hotel professional, you wouldn't be able to tell as a hotel professional, you can see the six or seven different things that are the magic for the guest that's just making the whole experience feel good. And then sometimes you go into these, some of these hotels and you just like, everybody seems like they were just abandoned on the job. There's not a lot of above property level support. And, and again, none of this is to blame anybody, but it's how we think about and identify opportunities, right? Like we're going to do all the underwriting, right? And we're going to value it three different ways, but those are the numbers. And the color, I think, comes from some of the things I just mentioned. I'm having a, I guess, a friendly debate with one of our partners. And they asked me, we have a renovation that's planned in the guest rooms. And they said, is this going to be accretive to your rate? Is it going to be defensive, basically allowing you to maintain the rate? And I was thinking to myself, gosh, well, we're going to make these rooms look nice. They're going to be cool. They're going to be vibrant. They're going to have a soul. It better be accretive. And it got me thinking that maybe I don't want to be investing in hotels where if I spend money fixing it up, guests aren't going to pay me more to stay in that room. And it's really had an impact on me, this little debate, because I'm trying to understand, is this a hotel that a guest is going to pay more? It's in a top market. It's a great brand. But there are plenty of hotels where an owner will invest CapEx and not get any more return for their rate. And I'm curious how you analyze that. Yeah. You know, that's another, you know, you're bringing up some very good points. We always used to say that with our market concentration, we felt good about deploying capital. We knew you have to deploy a lot of capital. The hospitality industry is capital intensive to get into it and it's capital intensive to stay in it, right? It's just, (laughs) Capital, capital, capital. Yeah, that's right. So it's a the debate you're having with your investor is actually the crux of a great question. And you asked me about it earlier, but that's some of the thinking that went into some, our strategy shift. We've fully divested from our select service hotels in the public company. We're a pure luxury lifestyle portfolio at this point. We've got some four-star. And we have a couple of select service left in New York. But other than that, it's really like you say, you know, it's We know that the capital has to go into these hotels. So you not only want to be in hotels, read segment, right? Lifestyle, luxury, four-star, branded even, you know, but it also then depends on the market. And we always used to say that, right? It's not just the bones and the hotel and the corner of Maine and Maine. 
it's also the town, right? Because you can build the, you can have the greatest luxury on some markets, just don't get the ADR. And it's, you know, like there's, you know, just, it's, you know, history is just filled with those bright ideas. And so, you know, like what Lawrence did was made it that much more of a risk, right? Is investing deeply in the four seasons, but he was investing in the idea that the rate ceiling needed to be shattered and only the leading hotels in the market could do it. So that market allowed for it. Others might not. Food and beverage has always been a struggle for hospitality people. I think food and beverage people that get into hospitality maybe is a different story. But what have you found to be the best ways to structure F&B deals within a hotel for like a true third-party restaurant? If you want a banging restaurant in your hotel and you want to get outside capture, whether it's a bar, restaurant, rooftop bar, what have you, in your experience, found to be a great solution to that question? I would say that that's still a work in progress. I wish I had the right answer for it. I think generally speaking, the preponderance of the times, particularly in the markets that we're in and the segments we're operating in, I think the best way to do it is to come to terms on how the capital investment is going to be allocated. And then that necessarily will have implications to what the lease looks like. Hotel owners love to have a, they don't like to rely on the percentage lease much, right? Everybody wants to have their number in place. But I mean, look, what we have learned, and I'm sure you see this, is like we get the restaurateur to agree to anything we say, right? But in the end, if it doesn't work out, it's still going to be our problem. And so, I mean, I think that one is just experience, experience, experience. I think you got to look around at what the successful multi-unit restaurant tours in a market are doing. I think it's kind of a debacle to be the only store or one of only three stores of a restaurant tour, unless there's a special connection to that area location. Better if you can get somebody that does this in that market. And then I think that's the best that we have found is to come to some sort of a sensibility around the capital investment you know, I think it's like a year or two of some flexibility in rent while they ramp up and then and then a, a component of percentage rent where the bulk of it would come from the fixed rent is normally how we do it. But we have had to go far more percentage rent and we might have to do that even more going forward. And do you let the management company do their own deal or is your preference to try and bring in someone with outside expertise that's not necessarily involved with the hotel. Oh yeah, no, we would, many of our restaurants, we do operate ourselves. And we operate some, you know, we operate some very successful restaurants. I think it's remarkable, you know, we just picked our head up one day and realized that we were running that many. And we run some of them because they're not operations that are well-suited to a lease or a management agreement, right? They could be just so incorporated into the hotel operations or program that it doesn't suit. It could be that it's too small, right? You're not going to, it's hard to find a restaurateur to lease 55 seat restaurant. It just ain't going to happen. So you got some of these limitations. So, you know, so you do have to learn, I think, to some degree, how to do it on your own, how to do it economically, or in that case, you partner up with someone that can be a bit of a maybe in a licensing arrangement or something like that. But it's, you know, that's a sticky wicket. I think there too, as you mentioned earlier, some of the conversations you had with an investor of yours, that's making you think about what segments to invest in going forward. 
I think for us now, too, I think we take a much closer look at the F&B space. I think what we like to see is we don't like it to be sprawling. We like it to be compact personally. And people in the company have different views. But my, I love the idea of a bar-heavy all-day dining concept. That is just, you know, you can gussy it up and dress it up however you want, but it's all day dining that's bar heavy. My view has always been people rather have dinner in a bar than have a drink in a restaurant. Yeah, we are so much more focused right now on any of our new development is essentially like compact full service where even the meeting space and the ballroom space is much smaller, but the whole lobby is basically built around a bar. And maybe we have a rooftop bar in addition. And then some of our older hotels, I've essentially pushed to almost eliminate the restaurant and create basically a bar that is a coffee cafe in the morning and then transitions to a bar at night and serves food and it's smaller. Because who is going to a restaurant inside of a Hilton hotel these days? The reality is no one. So you want to capture what you have and make it the best experience for what you have in the hotel. But the times of the like old school F&B is totally gone. I totally agree. And it's just like people have people stay occasions today for hotels have changed so dramatically. And I think it goes the same for dining, right? We just don't. To just say we don't travel for the same reasons we used to, we don't eat anywhere in the way we used to. And, and, you know, I think we're starting to see some terrific innovation in restaurant, in hotel restaurants and bars. And even with B&C, even with banquet and catering, there hasn't been anything for a really long time. And now all of a sudden you're starting to see different things being experimented with and some new stuff coming out that I think has some legs. But I think you're hitting it, you know, this, as folks continue to drive more towards spending on experiential and memorable events, slow, quiet dinners in the back of a hotel restaurant, that's just not on the, that's not on anybody's list. You know, a cocktail in a sleek bar where you learn something about the drink you're having and you identify another drink or two for the next time you're coming there and the appetizer you're going to order for the barman, like that's an experience, right? That's so much engagement. It's all small potatoes, but it's just, that's how you get folks into it. I mean, it's like the luxury retailers have been doing it for years. Today, the greatest EBITDA of LVMH probably comes from selling belts and hair clips, right? Hoteliers need to draw more experience, like more inspiration from the experiential of retail. Retail has gotten to be so much of an experience on the good stuff. And I think it's been a shift during COVID. I mean, you mentioned creating these moments and experiences, all of the other financial crises. And COVID was a financial crisis for the hospitality industry. There were a few resort hotels that performed beyond their wildest dreams and a few markets that performed incredibly. But largely, hotels got smoked during that period. And unlike other crisis that came before it, I think COVID really changed things for travel. And I'd love to know how you are going to be investing going forward and what types of things you're going to be investing in based on certain shifts that happened during COVID and clearly travels remaining a huge priority because even as economic concerns are rising, 
airlines are seeing record bookings and hotels, RevPAR are continuing to grow. I think COVID has had a dramatic impact on spending generally. I think we are one of the greatest beneficiaries of it. I think there are a couple others, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about it. But I think one of the things that happened is I think that lockdown was so unnatural and so severe and so harsh, yet so happening. Right? <laughs> it was just happening. Like every the smartest guy in the room no longer had anything to say, right? Like he just, it quieted down the smartest guys in the room, the the know-it-alls that always had an everybody. So I think it sent this message home that we are more fragile than we think and that life could be pretty short. Like some of the horrible things people talk about may come to pass. And so I think the country is in a very, very indulgent period. But we've got the millennials and the Gen Z, and we've been looking all about their lifestyle tastes and preferences for a long time. And so we've got, I'm in a hurry to tick off some of these indulgences combined with, I need it to be experiential and it better be memorable or I'm not spending my money on it. And I expect people to know what I want. And so, wow, like that's a bonanza, right? So we as hospitality investors, particularly as we continue to innovate and develop in the lifestyle and luxury segments of our industry, like this it couldn't be better, right? Like we are all about Instagram. Like that's what we do. It's like Instagrams are us. Like that's what our lobbies are. They might not be to our taste, but they sure look good on camera, right? And that's kind of where we are because people want to capture the memory They want to capture the moment that was memorable. And it's got to look pretty good. And you got to have them all over the place. And you have to be real about it. Like you can't just be a script and a movie set. And so it's awesome. But it goes back to, you've got a pretty sophisticated real estate finance business here. The consumer-facing retail business getting real interesting. But, you know, once again, two ways to create value, two ways to get smoked but keeps us on our toes. And I think that's why we do what we do. So what's the most common way people get smoked in the hotel business? Well, I mean, look, and I'm sure the audience and you know the answer to it, but I won't do the whole list, just the top 10 maybe we'll go through. People get smoked because A, they think the hotel business is pretty easy and because they would stay at the hotel, that they'll be able to fill 250 rooms a night of people that think exactly like them. Right. Like you see that stuff all the time. And it's unbelievable. I think what people don't necessarily understand is how much of a real estate finance business it is. No matter how great you do on the retail operating side, it's a pretty heavy balance sheet business and it's capital intensive and capital's costly. So unless you have it humming on the top, I think being data driven and information led on the top line which is everything from program to design to execution to segmentation to pricing strategy. I mean, it's extremely technical. And I think a lot of people just tend to underestimate it. I think people don't realize that double-clicking on everything that you see in a hotel is going to open up multiple pages of considerations. And I think it's just easy to underestimate. Always is. And we'll be happy to pick up those deals when they come our way. That's what professionals do. That's what professionals do. I want to talk a little, we've talked about this privately, but the conversation that we're having now is very different from the hotel company that 
you came into with your dad and your brother. And it's similar to my story. My dad had three hotels and I'm trying to grow the business in a very different way on many different levels than the business that that he started and that I'm grateful for. And certainly along the way, whether it's you know your colleagues or mentors or even people within your own senior leadership team, they might say, hey, this isn't what we do, but you have conviction to do something. And it's been said to me before. And I want to talk about the mindset that you have and that you've relied on to push the company to this new level that I'm sure the original partners never would have dreamed of in their wildest dreams? I think that question is, it probably goes to one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite things about business, right? And we've been talking a lot about a lot of the technical ingredients to a good investment and to what are the good, important components of business, good business judgment, right? In the hotel investing space. But I think, you know, what's often overlooked is the values. You and I have similar experiences, family enterprise involvement in the business in the early days, you know, transitioning away from that over time, transitioning, you know, like the strategy is one thing, but the nature of the enterprise is another. And then that's a pretty big deal. And I think the only way that could successfully happen, whether I think one attributes it to it or not, I think it's about values. And it's about being able to see the values that have driven the success and the returns in the past and to interpret them for the future, to interpret them to be sustainable. I think a lot of times people think of values as very rigid. And, you know, our five core values were ones that we took the time to put down on paper when we were something like probably by then already 15 years old. But we were trying to capture my father, mother, and their partner's values. You know, it was an owner-operator mentality. It was a lot of communication. There's a lot of trust. You know, there was on our core values initially were honesty, communication, community achievement, and personal growth. Real simple. Today, the values don't read that way, right? Now, the values are people are our capability. Stay nimble. Own it. And I was a little resistant, right? Because we'd come up with these values and I somehow felt that you can't change your values, but I think you can change the way you explain them and teach them to remain relevant and timely to subsequent generations of growth, right? And I think that's how you pull through the essence and the the sources of success for the early enterprise into the success for the future enterprise. And, you know, that takes special people, right? Like we know, like, you know, family enterprises to transition away from a family enterprise or to transition into a far more institutional family enterprise, fraught, right? With uh, complexity, friction, et cetera. I think if we take the moment to understand that, this is about the sustainability of a platform. And I think when you think about it like that, then you're not really taking it anywhere. It becomes a much more intuitive and obvious adjustment that's needed in order to compete as successfully as in previous years. And so that's how I've thought about it. I hope I'm answering that question. 
One of the areas that you've created tremendous value is on the management side of the business. And a lot of people don't always appreciate the value of management when the businesses are combined. I presume when you launched the REIT, you separated those businesses, but maybe you can tell me about when you realized the management company had true value, which for those that don't know, HHM, which Jay is affiliated with, is one of the largest management companies in the country and has grown tremendously over the past 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I always developed it with the idea that one day we would be able to drive independent value from that platform. And it took a while, you know, because it was just a captive management company for a very long time. And it is very hard to sell your services to third parties when you're a captive, right? It just don't. I'm trying to do it right now. It's hard. I understand. And it is hard. And I'll tell you some of the things we did to help us get over it, but, and then I'll tell you what I think really made it happen. So some of the things we did to get over it is we branded it differently. Then we got new management, but then we got really good new management when we finally could really aggressive, like, you know, with the intention of we're investing in this management team in order to grow it. And we did all of that and it was, you know, worked okay. But I think it really became solid when it's just about the leader and the supporting cast you put around them. And I think, you know, it's a kind of, well, you know, what is mission, right? And make that mission clear. And then you kind of got to do whatever it takes. And some of that's hard because you can imagine in our early days, it was a family enterprise. So the management company, that was just, that's who everyone got to tell what to do. Like that's what it used to be. Right? Each of the partners had something to say to the management company, everybody. And it typically wasn't about growing the management company. It was about something that went wrong yesterday. And it was very interesting. And that just wasn't real productive, right? And so, you know, there does come that period where we're like, yeah, we got to really grow this thing. Our period just happened to take a long time. So it did, it resulted in some raised eyebrows and question marks over the years, for sure. But I think it was worth all of that because at the end of the day, we've talked about it a couple of times, like that operating business that's stacked on top of our real estate finance balance sheet is, we know, makes all the difference in the world. And I think having responsiveness, having alignment, having shareable insights, having a long-term understanding of the two counterparties and how they operate and how they think and how they strategize. I think that stuff matters a lot in this business. You've had a few partners in the management company. You've turned it over to external leadership. You've had partners on the REIT side. Oftentimes in hospitality, you have to bring in partners because it is so capital intensive. What makes a really good partner? I think a good partner, well, they got to have enough money. <laughs> That's important. Capital matters. But then after that, you know, I think what really matters is I think a common worldview and to some degree, common values. And I don't mean that, you know, that you always have to have the, that kumbaya with every partner, but you got to have the same values for the deal, for that deal or for whatever you're doing together. I think it's really important that everyone have a very aligned and synchronized view going forward. I facetiously said it's important that they have a lot of capital. And, you know, certainly that helps. Gas in the tank, you know, when you've got a growth platform, that's always a very good thing. And our last two partners 
in the management company. Both were, you know, had very strong access to capital. And that's helping us quite a bit. But I think also it matters that they have a lot of capital so that, you know, they can kind of keep a bigger scale view out for the company. Because the management business is not on its face necessarily scalable. There's a lot of moving parts in our business. It's associates. And it's very interesting. I was, you know, I transitioned to an executive chairman role as of January 1st, and I was getting ready to do the internal communication just to our team. And I did that sometime in September. And I was like, I wonder what I should wait to or tie it to. And it was literally at the beginning of that week that we had 10,000 associates, you know, at HHM. You know, it's a big number. It's a terrific number. But we run hotels. Like each of them's doing different things. Like some people are room attendants and some are at the desk and some are, they're slid under a boiler in the boiler room. And it's just a lot going on at these hotels across very significantly sized physical plants. And so management's hard work. But I think the value in a larger management platform, there is some scale, there is some synergy. But I really think, and I think this is going to continue, it's just information and insights. When you start getting that deep into a marketplace, into an urban center or regional marketplace, and you got multiple assets, I think it allows you to have great insights. Other than that, I think, you know, it's scale is great so long as each investment's great. (laughs) Then scale's going to work out great. You'll always have more efficiency then. So I think in some of these markets, I, I think the information matters. And I think scale for scale's sake isn't my point. But, you know, if you've got a good thing and you can scale it, well, that's certainly going to be a better investment on a blended basis. So let's say for a second, capital markets are back ripping. You feel very confident deploying capital out of the REIT. What's one market that you're not in right now that you are telling your team to target? We've been looking really closely at Austin. Haven't found the right entry point. I fear we might have missed one or two, but you can't really regret. We like Texas. I don't know how we're going to feel about Texas once things sort out here, but you know, maybe there's still some. But we really do like Southern Florida. Still a very, very big growth market for us. We're in Miami. We've got one asset in the Keys. You know, we think the West Coast of Florida might actually present better entry points despite the, the run up in cost. I think some of that on the West side, there's a little more opportunity to be had there. Yeah, but other than that, we divested out of most of our California portfolio and we divested from Seattle. And I don't know that we have any plans to get back in there, but I sure hope we do soon because that's just a huge a part of the sector, the West Coast. And it's just, you know, unfortunately, not very hospitable environs to be making investments out there right now. Especially not hotel investments. No, no, not at all. So I asked all the guests the same closing question. And inside of your portfolio, outside of your portfolio, it doesn't matter. But I would love to know what is your favorite hotel in the entire world? This is an old answer. It's an impossible question to answer. But I can tell you what my old favorite hotels were. And I'll tell you what one is that I'm really liking right now. And my two older favorite hotels were both urban. 
And one was more leisure oriented because it just held a special place for me. And one is a more of a business hotel. But I love the Four Seasons in Boston as a business hotel. I once had to write a speech or something and I had a room facing the park and I was sitting there drafting my speech. And I, you know, I could have been president of the United States at that point. <laughs> it was so remarkable. Just a perfect place to write something great. It feels so that. historic. It really does. And then I love the Taj, the heritage wing of the Taj in Bombay. Ruthen Tata built that hotel when, when he felt that most of the British-controlled hotels were discriminatory against the Indians, the native Indians. And he built the Taj, and it is still one of the most glorious historical uh, hotels in the world. It's lovely, built from great old bluestone from the area, neo-Gothic. But today, I'll tell you, I'm going to give you an interesting curveball on what my favorite hotel is. I have a house down on the eastern shore on, of the Chesapeake Bay, and it's a small town called Chestertown, Maryland. It's the home of Washington College, and some of the audience might be familiar with it. Washington College is a part of the Centennial League, right? And it's in the same small liberal arts, private liberal arts college, similar to Gettysburg and Lafayette and some of the schools like this. Now. And Chestertown was a famous old town. You know, when the Boston Tea Party was happening in Boston, there were actually 11 other tea parties that happened across the country. And one of them was in the Chestertown Harbor. The Chester River comes off the Chesapeake Bay and comes into Chestertown. The old customs house there dates back to like the early 1700s. It's really quite interesting. And there's a site there that the college owns. And of course, every town wants a hotel. It's a lovely, picturesque, small town, slow living, but it's got the college. So we've got the Center for Environment and Society. It's a world-class environmental program. They've got world-class water crew and sailing. And we have Bill Schindler, who has this unbelievable food sociology program. So it's just this amazing place. But we're building a community hotel on the riverfront. And so... I've been gotten involved. The college owns the land, and this is not a Hersha hotel. But when I was back in school, I remember reading a chapter in this book in the turn of the century when the railroads were starting to come across town. Their first order of business was to make sure that a rail station hit their town. But then they quickly realized that in order to grab the share of travelers traveling on the rail line, they had to have a hotel for commerce, for leisure for politics. Like it just made you a more relevant place. It's like when you had that hotel, right? The hotels have, they own that special place in a community at the corner of Maine and Maine. It's where we greet all of our guests. It can be the back porch of the town. And so we're kind of resurrecting this idea of a community hotels. All of the dollars for the hotel are going to be raised locally. And it's going to have a great low country vibe. That's kind of how the Eastern shore is. We're doing like about a hundred room hotel. And so it's my way of serving the community while I'm down there. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. All right, let's leave it there. I love it. That's a great story. You'll come You're see amazing. it. Amazing. Thanks for joining me. I will come see it. Sounds awesome. Appreciate you to the nth degree. Thanks for having me on. This was terrific. And I appreciate you taking the time for those questions or if you came up with them on the fly, made for a great conversation. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at 
Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. <laughs>